Good morning. It is such a joy for me, a privilege to be here with you. I think it was uh, 32 years ago, um, Carolyn and I and our, our boys came here and we asked God, God, will you cause us to fall in love with this church? And he answered that prayer in a matter of days. And we've loved this church and this place ever since then. It's always been a privilege for me to stand in this place, it's especially now in these days of my life when God's called us to a different ministry of traveling overseas, of training pastors and encouraging them. But it's been a sweet joy in our, my life to be friends with our pastor and to know and to be confident that God brought him here and God is continuing to shepherd this flock in really some sweet and beautiful ways, along with the rest of our staff and elders. And Anyway, it's a great joy to be asked to share. He said that I could focus where I wanted to in Colossians chapter 2. So I want to talk to you this morning about a place in the Word of God that God really used in my life, a sweet amazing place in the Word of God, and, and I hope that God will do something in your life sim similar to what He has done in my life. Uh, last week, Pastor Dave began with what he called an aerial view of chapter 1, and he did something that I never have been able to do, and that is he covered like the whole chapter in one sermon. And <laughs> But it was good, and of course the focus of it is in that amazing place about verse, what is it, 15, where he starts talking about the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ and how incredibly wonderful he is. And, he, and Pastor Dave shared with us the purpose of Paul in the, in the letter to the church at Colossae was that he had this passion for them. He had a heart's concern for these people that he called his brothers and sisters in the Lord. And he wanted them, he want, wanted them to be able to serve Christ and to please him and to grow in him and to become everything that God wanted them to become. And in order for them to do that, they had to begin to understand more clearly that he is the king, not only the cosmic king of all the universe, the creator of all things, but he must then become their king and that the Christian life really is all about Christ as king in our lives. They, he wanted them to understand the greatness of Jesus Christ. So now we've come to chapter 2, and I want to focus our attention particularly on verses 6 through 15, so I hope you can find it in your Bible, or take one of the few Bibles in front of you. Paul now begins to tell them in chapter 2 that he's far away from them physically, but he's with them in spirit. And he was far away, he was actually in prison when he wrote this. And he still has this concern for them that they understand, chapter 2, verse 2, the full riches, of com full riches of complete understanding in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know, I heard that kind of language for a long time, and it went like, whew, right over my head. I had no idea what people were talking about when the preacher talked like that. The full riches of complete understanding in Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and understanding and knowledge. Because verse, chapter 2, verse 6 through 15, Paul now begins to unfold what he calls the fullness of Christ. And he says to us, and you have fullness 
in him. And he uses that particular word. And it's an amazing thing. And this is why this particular passage was used by God in my life. Because, well, long, long ago, when the earth's crust was still cooling, (laughs) I was a young boy in church. And I heard this kind of stuff again and again and again. And I heard this thing called the gospel. I heard the story of the Bible many times, the story of Jesus and the cross of Jesus. And, and I heard about a place called heaven, and that sounded really good to me. And then I heard about a place called hell, and that did not sound so good to me. And I decided early that I didn't want to go to that place called hell, so I better figure out what to do. And so then the pastor said, well, here's what you have to do. You have to believe in Jesus. You have to repent of your sin, confess Christ, be baptized, and live a holy life. And then maybe you get to go to heaven. I still remember the fingers. Believe in Jesus, repent of sin, confess Christ, be baptized, and live a holy life. Not bad. And so I did. I walked the aisle. I prayed the prayer multiple times. I was even baptized more than once because I was really certain the first time didn't take at all. And, and when I became a teenager, when I moved into like middle school, I began to have all kinds of doubts because all I knew was that I'd walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and got wet. I wrestled with all kinds of questions I couldn't answer. I looked at my own life and I thought, I, I've, they've told me I'm forgiven, but I don't feel forgiven. And I have a real problem. I keep doing the same bad stuff that I did before. And I began to wonder, how many times is he going to forgive you for that? And I spent a long time, many, multiple times, asking for forgiveness again. And then when I got a little older, I, I, I had some friends, and they began to ask me questions I couldn't answer. How could somebody dying 2,000 years ago forgive your sin today and take you to a place called heaven? How does that work exactly? And I'd go, well, um, I don't know. I just, you believe that? And then I would waffle. Well, I think so. And then I'd begin thinking to myself, why don't I feel forgiven? Why don't I feel change? Why, don't I, why am I not living this life that people say is so amazing? Why don't I have the ability to live the Christian life? How come I can't be a good Christian boy? Why? What's wrong with me? And I began to look around at other Christians, and I didn't know them very well. I saw the happy faces on Sunday, but I went to school with some of the kids And I thought, maybe I'm just one more sad and frustrated Christian who thinks this is true and we're praying that maybe God would forgive us and we're hoping that we could finally become good enough and desperately hoping to make it to heaven someday. And then this surprising thing happened. By the surprising grace of God and his immense sense of humor, he made me a pastor. And I learned in a hurry that pastors are supposed to know the Bible and they're supposed to teach it. And I thought, oh, never done either one of those very well. So I immediately began to study the Bible, you know, and then I began trying to teach it. And I learned what many of you have learned. When you try to teach the Bible, you learn 10 times more than anybody that sits in your class, right? And so I began to learn. 
And for the first time in my life, I began to discover the answer to some of these questions. And I began to understand some of why I felt the way I did and where the doubts was coming from and what I needed to do. One of the greatest discoveries, the greatest discovery for me personally was to discover how immensely wonderful Jesus Christ is. I never knew that. I never knew it. I believed he was the son of God and I, and I believed that he died on the cross, but I didn't know how incredible he was, how truly awesome he is. And I began to discover more and more the meaning of who he is and what he did and why he did it and what he's continuing to do. And I began to discover that salvation is not just some magic wand that God waves over us and your sin is forgiven and he ignores it and he gets to take you into heaven and you can't quite figure out how that works exactly. And I began to discover the Bible actually tells how it works. And I began to learn about how this thing called salvation, what it actually is and how it actually works. Now, I don't want to pretend to you that I've like arrived and I understand all this. This is like a lifetime quest for me. And now even in Colossians, when I read it again and study it again, I'm, I'm like learning and refreshed again. I began to see that real salvation, authentic salvation, is becoming in Christ and having Christ in me and that I truly have become a new creation. And I never knew that. God has done so much more for me and my salvation than I ever knew. And I began to discover that the gospel has more good news in it than I ever thought. And it was a revelation for me and I, I fell in love with the master something I'd never done before. And this is what changes everything. And that's what Paul is getting at in this letter. He's getting at what it really means to be a true, authentic Christian. But he never used the word Christian. You won't find Paul writing the word Christian ever again. What he called what we call a Christian, he says, someone who is in Christ and someone who has Christ in you, the hope of glory. So let me try to share with you why verses, particularly verse 6 through 15, are so meaningful to me. And maybe this will help you up on the screen. I don't know. Colossians taught me so much. So I want to draw your attention, first of all, to verse 9 and 10 of chapter 2, where Paul writes this, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. Now, I want to just tell you that this is not easy stuff. This, I mean, right? It isn't immediately simple for us to be able to grasp a hold of it. But, you know, the great commandment is love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So I want you to love God with your mind now for a few minutes and wrestle with this with me. What these verses are teaching is that God's purpose is to, receive, to reveal the fullness of Jesus Christ, first of all to give praise to him for who he is, and then to enable people like us to understand and experience the fullness that God intends for his people. That's what God intends for you. 
the fullness of Jesus Christ. Do you see the word fullness? He repeats it twice. He First of all, he says there's fullness in Christ, and then he says there's fullness in you because you are now in Christ. In Christ, we have been brought to fullness. Nobody ever told me that. I, well, maybe they did, and I just didn't get it. I was probably fooling around. Who knows? So Paul tells us now in verse 6 and 7, which I think is the key to this passage, verse 6 and 7 of Colossians 2, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. The plan of God for the Christian life has two parts. One is receive Christ. The other is live your life in him. It is as simple And as amazingly deep and complex as that, receive him and live your life in him. My problem was that I was steeped in a Christian church, and we were famous for using our Christian language. You know that, don't you? We've done this. We we boil things down into one or two words to simplify it, and and we can say these words to other people, and, and we think they know what we mean. Right? Or, or we simplify things down so much to just a few words and people are not quite sure. And pastor types are famous for this. Receive Christ. What is that? I, for many years of my life, I thought that's the thing that the evangelist says or the pastor says. And, it, and it's really all about making a decision to become a Christian. It's that moment in time. And he says, don't you want to receive Christ? If you want to receive Christ, walk the aisle, pray the prayer. You know, confess Christ, receive Christ. And that was like this moment, this brief period of time when you make a decision for Christ. And sometimes the words were, invite Christ into your heart. Receive Christ. But the more I studied the Word of God, and the more particularly I looked at places like this in the Bible, I began to, re- re- to think, wait, wait a minute, the words receive Christ are much more than that. It's much more than just a decision that I make. It really is receive Christ. To receive Christ means you actually, literally, spiritually, receive Christ. He comes into you. You receive him. And then, of course, it has immense implications for everything of life. It changes everything if you receive Christ in all of who he is. And the message is receive Christ and then live continually in him. Now you receive him, so live in him. Live in him. That's something I never caught at all, that the Christian life is really not about me doing my best to try to not do the baddies and do the goodies so that I would hopefully get to the wonderful place, you know, What I needed to do was I needed to live in the fullness of what he had actually given to me. I needed to live my life in him. Paul says, as you received him, how did you receive him? By grace through faith. By God's grace, you believed and you received Christ. So now you live in him in the same way as you received him, so live in him. Now you live by grace through faith. 
And I began to understand that what Paul is teaching here is that, and in places like the book of Romans and Ephesians and other places, that real salvation is literally a union together with Christ. It's a new relationship. It's something where God has done something supernatural that no walking an aisle or praying a prayer can ever accomplish. We need to do that, but God is the one who makes the new creation. What is the new creation? I, I had no idea. I didn't feel like a new creation. What is a new creation? That's a supernatural work of God that happens when you actually receive Christ. You enter into a, a life-giving relationship with someone who is God. So as you received him, so live in him. You received a person, a relationship a completely new life, a belonging, an identity. You are different. You're no longer this, where you just look at yourself, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, I'm one with the Son of God. I've been placed in Christ. I have a new identity. So now live in that identity, live in that relationship. We are all then to live in the fullness of the one we have received. Let me say that again. We are to live in the fullness of the one we have received. You live this life in the fullness of the one you received. And that changes everything in your life. It's not just about some things that you believe. It's not just some facts that you agree to. It's not really about a church or, or about a decision. It's about a master. It's about a Lord who has actually come into you and you are now in him and now you live according to the fullness of who he is. And who is he? He is the fullness of God himself. And if he is received by us, he is never received partially or in a small way. We may think it's small or we may not experience all of what he is and who he is in our life, but he is, comes in in his fullness and he comes in as Savior and Healer and Strength and Lord and Master and Friend and King. And he never changes that, even when we fail him. So Paul says, so you receive Christ, now live in him. Now be rooted, that is, put your roots down deep in him and be built up like a building. Roots down deep like a tree. You put your roots down deep in Jesus and be built up in Christ. And then you must be strengthened in the faith, Paul says. Notice he didn't say strengthen in your faith. And there's another confusion I had. I always thought, well, the, the, the need I have is to be stronger in faith. Ever, so I'm going to be more full of faith. <laughs> you ever tried this? You know, I, I don't, I'm pretty weak in faith, so I'm just going <laughs> to grit it out, and I'll be full of faith. Or maybe I'll pray a prayer, and God will give me faith, and I don't have to do anything. How do you get, how do you strengthen your faith? You strengthen your faith by focusing on the faith. And the faith is this body of teaching, this body of truth about who Jesus Christ is and what he did and what he's now doing. That's how your, your faith gets strengthened. The, the more that you understand and submit to the word of God, the more your faith in the faith will expand and grow. And so Paul says, put your roots down deep in him, be built up in him, and be strengthened in the faith. That is, learn more about Jesus and live for him. Oh, and then this, be overflowing with thankfulness. I never knew that either. 
And people would say stuff. We Christians are the most thankful people in the world. We have the joy. <laughs> and I'd say, I'd like to see a little of it, you know, and you don't look like it to me, and I don't have any of it. I'd like to have some of it. I was stumbling. But then God, in his grace, allowed me to look into his word and begin. he began to pour some understanding. It took years for me. Look at verse 9 and 10. Key verses, again. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity. What is deity? That's God. The eternal creator, the sovereign ruler, the king of kings, the forever holy one, God in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Whoa. I think I believe that all the fullness of God was in Jesus. But this second part, in Christ, I have been brought to fullness. Oh, that takes more faith. The fullness of Almighty God is in Christ. And then guess what? When you became a Christian, if you really did, he put you into that fullness. And now, guess what? You have fullness. This is not you, about you being perfect. It, it's about the gift that God has given to you, that you have this fullness that you never, ever had before. Paul says, now you have been given fullness in Christ. And people began to say things to me, the people that I began to learn from, they began to say to me, Carl, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are now? You love him, you submit to him, you claim him as Lord, you believe you have the Holy Spirit. Do you know who you are? And I never understood that becoming a Christian was about a change of identity, and it was something that God did supernaturally. That's why Paul called it a new creation, a transformation. It's something that no human being can do. But you know when it happens. You may not be living in, in the fullness of it, but you know when it happens to you. So what does this fullness mean for us? Look at verse 8. Many things, but Paul mentions like three in this verse. So see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive. Those are frightening words, captive, taken captive. Those are words that describe defeat and slavery. Now I want to ask you, in this world that you know, are there people who have been taken captive by philosophies that are hollow and deceptive? Everywhere. Everywhere, my friends. It's as true for us as it was for in the times of Colossians. We're surrounded by the influence of what Paul calls philosophy, human traditions, and spiritual forces. And we get it from all sides all the time. It's all constantly coming. Turn your television on and you'll get it. You'll get a dose of it. We're constantly being influenced by things that we think seem logical. Or they're popular or they're part of our culture or they're interesting or we just think this is a good idea. This is what to live for. And so people come up with their own philosophies. We have people say things like, I don't believe in organized religion. 
So I just have my own personal philosophy. Have you ever heard anything like this? I just have my own, I, you know, and, and then you say, well, what is your own personal philosophy? And they say something like, uh, you know, just be a good person. Good luck on that one. Just be a good person or just be, you know, if you just be sincere or tolerant or, or uh, I've heard people say, I just want to live according to my own values. Other people say, I want to be self-fulfilled. I want to be happy. My philosophy is to be open-minded, you know, and to find fulfillment in myself. And other people focus on their own rights, and, or maybe they focus on a cause in the world. And many of these causes are really good, and they're important. Protecting the earth, you know, protecting the animals, or, you know, or, or a huge number of causes that are really good. And, and, and I want to make sure you understand what Paul is saying here. He's not opposed to philosophy. Paul, Paul doesn't have any problem with the philosophy. Philosophy is really two Greek words, Philo, which means love, and Sophia, which means wisdom. Philosophy literally means love of wisdom. You think Paul loved wisdom? Absolutely he did. And the book is full of it. Wisdom. The, the problem that Paul has is a philosophy that, look at the words, is hollow and deceptive. So there are philosophies that are hollow and deceptive. There are philosophies that deceive people, and there are philosophies that are empty and people don't know they're empty until they give themselves to this philosophy for a long period of time and then after a while they, f they don't find themselves more full they find themselves empty and so they're trying to find another philosophy to live by some other standard some other thing that will motivate me and Paul says but these things are not based on Christ and that's the problem if you find a philosophy that's based on Jesus you're in good shape right and tradition, Paul's not opposed to tradition. I mean, he's, he's a Jew, he was a Pharisee, he's steeped in tradition. But Paul has learned, by the time he becomes a follower of Christ and, and the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul has learned that there are some traditions that hide Christ, and there are some traditions that reveal Christ. And so we want the traditions that reveal Christ. But today, you can have the same problem. You can become a Christian, go to church faithfully, even read the Bible, do a whole bunch of things, and you, after a while, you begin realizing that the traditions of the things that you practice or the philosophy that you practice are just a little off from Jesus. They're not bad. They're good things. But the main thing is based upon Christ a philosophy and traditions. And then he talks about spiritual forces of this world. The scholars debate about what he meant there, and we're not really totally positive. It could have meant angels and demons, or maybe he meant nature or astrology or some of the things that people gave themselves to. You know, the Greeks were famous for really looking at earth and fire and wind and water, and, you know, and they based whole philosophies around that. And but Paul says these things are not based upon Christ. And what we want then is a philosophy, a tradition, and spiritual forces that focus on Christ. And if you are following something that is hollow and deceptive, you'll discover one point in time that you're just empty. And so many of the promises that you heard were lies. And you know, you, you, we are surrounded by people like that. And many people don't even know it. And so what do we do? They need to see something real, authentic. They need to see something that's not hollow and deceptive. What do they need to see? 
Huh? Us. Us. They need to see us who have a philosophy and a tradition that is based upon Christ. Verses 11 through 15. Fullness in Christ overcomes our sinful nature, flesh, forgives us all our sins, and defeats the powers of evil. There's some uncomfortable words in these verses, and, and a lot of times when we run across the word circumcision, we all kind of grit our teeth and get sweaty palms and say, oh, I don't know what this means. And Paul uses that illustration several times, and he does it again. <clears throat> so look at it, verse 11. In him, this is Christ, in Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. He's talking not to Jews, he's talking to Greeks. You know, who, they had never been circumcised, but he says, you were circumcised, but with a circumcision not performed by human hands. And then he says, your whole self, your whole man, your whole reality of who you are, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. And now he's come to it. You see, I never understood a couple things. I, I, I knew that I needed to be forgiven my, for my sins, but the problem was is I just kept doing the stuff. And, and then, then I was in trouble. I didn't know what to do. You know, If you pray to, for forgiveness for that and you keep repeating it, why do you keep repeating it? And, and is he going to keep forgiving that or not? Any of you have any of these questions in your mind or is this just only me? And so I discovered what some people call, you got a sin factory in you. You not only have sins that you have committed that need to be forgiven, but you have a factory inside of you that is a sin factory that will keep producing sins, and you don't have any choice about it. Why? Because you have this thing that Paul called the flesh. Now, the flesh is one of two things in the Bible. It's the physical flesh that you have, your human body, or it is this part of us, some Bibles translate it sinful nature, that there is a fallenness about us, there is something in us, and you, you learn this really young, right? That there is a tendency that you have to go, right? Or to focus on yourself. You don't have to make a choice to be selfish, right? I mean... I don't really have to make a choice to be kind of jealous or want more stuff or, you know, envy. I don't, I don't have to choose to do that. That just sort of comes really natural. Where does it come natural? It comes from the sin factory, this thing called the flesh. And the amazing thing that I learned that Paul teaches, particularly in Romans 6 and other places and here, is that what God did in salvation is he handled both problems. He handled forgiveness of sin, and he also handled putting to death the old man that was dominated by the sinful factory. So that when you become a Christian, you have a power now that you never had before. You can still give yourself to the flesh, but you don't have to. Now if you sin, you sin in the full light of the grace of God. You know that, don't you? If you choose to do something you know is a sin, you're doing it in the full face of your holy God. And that's a motivation not to do it. But 
the problem here has been resolved for us, and that's part of the new creation, what Paul calls in, in Romans 6, the new man, the new self, that something has been put to death. What is the thing that's been put to death? This old flesh in us. You see, and that's why Paul talks about both circumcision and baptism. Circumcision was literally, you know what it was. It was in the Old Testament. It was the sign of the covenant to be marked, a physical mark in the flesh, a cutting off of flesh that made a Jewish man part of the children of God, the people of God. It was a separation for them. But the Old Testament goes on and says, God never wanted you to focus on the physical thing. He wanted this physical thing to teach a spiritual truth that you are God's people, so live like God's people. You have been cut off from this old way of living. Now you can live in a new way. Interestingly enough, baptism in the New Testament does exactly the same thing, just in a different way. You know what this is about, right? People come up here and, you know, and they, and they confess Christ, you know, and then we go whoosh like that. What is that symbol of? Death. Death. You don't leave them there, right? <laughs> but it's a symbol of death, dying. Dying to what? Dying to my old life. So don't go there until you want to do that. But if you want to do that, you better go there because that's a physical thing that teaches a spiritual truth. The main thing is not the physical water. The main thing is death to an old life and then, thank God, raised to new life, right? Are you with me here? Are you tracking with me? Is this like too confusing? I know I can be confusing. I came to realize I needed to be forgiven and I need to have this thing called the flesh dealt with. And God has done that. God says to us, or the scripture says, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ, and he forgave us all our sins. How amazing is that? I knew there was a promise of forgiveness, but I didn't know that he did it. He forgave all my sins. And then he made me alive with Christ. When I was dead, he made me alive. And the words of the evangelist and the words of the pastor began to come alive. And, and Paul begins to say, now your sin is forgiven, all your sin. And how can that happen? I always thought it was just, God was this magic wand thing, kind of, you know, okay, all your sins. Oh, you believe that? Oh, you know, okay, now your sin. Oh, you know, and that's the way it worked, you know. And if you haven't had the, you know, you're out of luck. So... <laughs> But then people start talking about the holiness of God and how, the, how sin and evil demands a punishment. And I thought, wait a minute here, you know. Uh, and then people say, look, you gotta be sin has to be punished one of two ways, in you or in Jesus. Which do you choose? And I say, oh, I'm sorry, Jesus, but I choose you. <laughs> right? That's why he ends that verse with the words, in the cross. In the cross. That shorthand that Paul uses, the cross, is shorthand for him, talking about everything of who Jesus is and his coming and his death and his burial and his resurrection, his ascension, right? And when you do this, you identify with him in his death and burial and resurrection. Because now you are in Christ, and if he's raised from the dead, then what? 
We are raised from the dead. And then the scripture began to fall together like this amazing, beautiful puzzle. And even the powers of evil, Paul says, are overcome by the cross. He uses the words, they are disarmed, their power is taken away, they are made a public spectacle, and they are triumphed over by Jesus Christ at the cross. At the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, and he overcame sin and death and evil. He won a victory that we could have never won, and then he gives it to us. Now we come to verse 12 and 13, where we learn that fullness in Christ gives us new life. And once more, I was caught up in all the Christian terminology, new life, life, life. The pastor was always talking about life, life. You get a new life. We do it too. Resurrection life. Now freedom. And I thought, I, I, you know, my little skeptical sort of evil personality would sit there and think, I heard that I'm already alive. I don't need new life. See, I'm alive. See, here I am. I'm alive. Why do you say I have to have new life? And then I begin to realize that the Bible teaches there's life and then there's life. And it separates that with the word eternal. And then I misunderstood that. I thought eternal life meant when you die, then you get eternal life because somebody said that one time and I bought it. But then I began to realize, no, that's not true. Eternal life doesn't start when you die. Eternal life starts when you are put into the life of Christ, who is an eternal life. You see this? It's like we were in Adam on our way to death, but then there's another life called the life of Christ, which is eternal, goes from eternity to eternity, one with God. And what God has done in salvation, he, by a work of spiritual transformation and power that only he can do, he has taken us and transformed us, translated us out of the life of Adam and into the life of Christ. And if you're in the life of Christ, then when you die, of course you go to heaven. You get that? So that decision has been made. So get over it, right? No, don't get over it. Live in it, right? Now, if you have Christ, you have his eternal life. And he doesn't give that and take it away. He puts you in him. And if you are in him, you are in the safest place possible. And everything has been changed. You are made alive. You are a new creation in Christ. Christ in me, alive now with Christ. I am now one with the Son. I am in him. My friends, are you born again? And do you know it? Is it just a feeling? Or do you know? God wants you to know. I think you can be born again and be uncertain. I think you can be born again and be full of doubt. But God doesn't want you to stay there. He doesn't want to leave you there. He wants, to be, he wants you to be so confident that you are truly in the Son. And one of the ways that God brought this about for me was to understand this truth and allow my mind to be renewed 
where I began to understand what it is, the power of what God has actually done, that when I prayed to receive Christ, you know what happened? I received Christ. He actually came into my life, and now I am in him, and he is in me. And now I'm beginning to experience this fullness that only he has. Our life is because of his life. Our fullness is because of his fullness. So now, live your life in him. Does that mean you're perfect? Oh, no. You can still go there. You can still do the flesh thing. You can still be tempted by the devil. You can still be conformed by the world. I mean, you can still do all those things, but not like it used to be. Now, if I sin, I sin in the full light of the glory and the holiness of my Father who sees my sin and forgives. It's a great motivation not to do it. There's more of us that he can rule. That's what this letter is about. Paul is saying, you're there. You're in Christ. Christ is in you. You have fullness, but there's more of the king you can have. There's more of his life you can experience. You can root, your roots can go down more deeply than they have gone down before. You can learn more about him than you've ever learned. You, you can experience more of his life than you've ever experienced. But, but what do you do? Do you just go to church? Is that it? Oh, no. You go to him. You got to go to him. I always thought you go to Jesus one time. Now I realize you go to Jesus again and again and again and again. You never stop. This was his great invitation. This is the one he repeated probably more than any other invitation. Come to me and I will give you life. Come to me and drink. Come to me and eat. I am the bread of life. You'll find nourishment for your soul. Come to me. Come to me. There is no life anywhere else. Come to me. I like the way that we conclude our worship services when we get up and we go to the communion table. But I'm really aware of the fact that it's very distracting for, I don't know maybe about you, but it's very distracting for me. I, I get lost in the, the mechanics of it and, you know, getting up and worrying about the people gone, you know, and then you stand in line and how long is this going to take? And do you take a big piece of bread or a little piece of bread, you know, and when you go back, when are we supposed to do this? And is there a prayer that I'm supposed to pray? And, you know, and anyway, is that, that's probably just me. So I want to ask you, we're going to do it again. But I want to ask you to do something a little different, if you would. Can you do two things at one time? Sure, sure. Yeah, sure you can. I want to ask you to pray while you come forward. Now, if you're thinking prayer, you've got to close your eyes. Don't do that. Uh, we'll be bumping into each other and trying to find the table. So that's not... With your eyes wide open, you can greet people. You can smile at people. You can come and take the bread and the cup and go back at your table. And when you're ready with your master, eat and drink. But what I would like to ask you to do is I'd like you to think of this as coming to Jesus. Because it's really what it's about. If you miss this, if you miss the spiritual meaning of this physical thing we do, it's just a tradition, right? 
and it's nearly meaningless. But if every time you do this, you're thinking, I'm coming to Jesus again because he is the one who is the bread of life. He is the one who shed his blood for me. I'm coming to Jesus again. If you can do that, it takes a little effort of your mind, right, and focus to be able to do that. What I would like to ask you to do in a moment is get up out of your seat and come forward, take the bread and the cup like you usually do, and go back and sit down and, and take it when you want. But let me talk to you a little bit while you do this. And we won't have any music playing, just have my voice. And I just want to say some words to you that I use in my own heart to come to the Master. Can you do that? And then I would ask you, pray, listen. If you believe these words, tell them yourself. Maybe repeat them yourself. Okay? Let's do it. Come to the tables. So, Lord Jesus Christ, we come again. We come again to you. We come again because you are wonderful. We say to you, Christ, my Savior, Christ, my Redeemer, Christ, my security, my safety. Lord Jesus Christ, my identity, my character, my example. Christ, my adequacy, my sufficiency. Christ, my enabler, my encourager, my strength. Christ, my inspiration, my passion. Jesus, my companion, my greatest friend. Christ, my king. Oh, my king. Christ, for every good for every joy, for every grace, for every praise. Christ also for every pain, for every challenge, for every struggle. Christ for every hurt. Christ, my devotion, my anticipation, my love. Christ in my thoughts, in my heart, Christ today and every day, Christ in everything, always and forever. <laughs>